Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Dr. Kaveh Hoda, thanks for joining us on this fun little medical podcast that examines the intersections of health, politics, and popular culture. How do you like that? That's my new catchphrase. Um, joining me today are two special guests to talk about something very important, something we've talked about before, something we're going to continue to keep talking about because I think it is that important. First, let me introduce the people, then we'll talk about what that subject is. I think you'll probably guess. First, we have returning guest. Ed Nuremberg, Ed, Edward, Eddie, Ed, E. How are you, buddy? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. It's lots of fun. Um, would it be safe to say that you are a, a vaccination advocate and a science communicator and you focus really on vaccines and COVID-19? Is that, is that, would that be fair? That, that would be fair. I think so. I want to be fair. I want to be fair and or balanced. I don't know if I can do both. <laughs> Joining us as well is Dr. Gavin Yami. Am I, Gavin, you know, I, I just realized I never said your last name out loud, even though I, we've known each other for a little bit. It, am I saying that correctly? Do you know what, Kaveh? I don't mind. We've got Yami, Yami, Yami. Well, what's, I, we, my no, man, let's, right, let's get it right. What is okay. it? Let's let, let's just tell it like it is. We, my immediate family, say Yami. So I am Gavin Yami. But, you know, it's a Lithuanian Jewish refugee name. You know, my grandpa escaped from pogroms against the Jews in Lithuania. The family got split. And across the world, the different Yamis literally, Yamis, 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 pronounce their name differently. So I don't mind. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, you just gave a really good argument with that history <laughs> as to why it should make a difference. <laughs> And so you can't tell me you can't bring pogroms into this and then say, ah, oh, but it doesn't matter. However you say you no, it matters. Uh, but well, I like, you know, I was like, yay, me. That's I mean, that's hard. I like that one. That one's my favorite if I'm, if I'm being honest. So I will happily stick with that one if that's the one you choose as well. 
Fabulous. That's the one I choose. I'm super excited to be on your show for the first time. And uh, when people ask me how to pronounce it, I do go like, yay for me, yay me. And yeah. we're going to try and find a way to link in vaccines, anti-vaccine activism, anti-Semitism, and my roots in Lithuania sometime on this show. How about that? Oh, that's it. Okay. And that is telling people also, which is nice, what this episode is about. We're going to talk about the anti-vaccine movement. I wanted to bring you two on to talk about the massive ongoing threat to public health, American and life elsewhere as well. That is the anti-vaccine movement. And we're going to talk about some of the most vocal and famous proponents of that right now. And also, I kind of want to talk about how I feel the history of COVID and the epidemic is being rewritten largely by these forces. Now, real quick, uh, Gavin, just to make sure I have this correct as well, you're a physician and a professor of global health and public policy at Duke University. Is that correct? That is correct. All right, very good. You direct the Center for Policy Impact in Global Health, and you also host a radio show. Is that correct? I do. Oh, thanks so much for let's, asking. Yes, Professor that, G. I yeah, mean, get that plug on. in. Get that. Get let's, that plug in. Thank you for the plug, Professor G's Musical Odyssey. Thursdays, four till six Eastern on www wxdu.org and i play everything from post-punk to folk funk from alice coltrane to kurt cobain please do tune in it's an that's a wonderful show i have tuned in so i do <laughs> i do recommend it so um i haven't gotten my shout out that i was promised but I on thursday it's coming that. this thursday this thursday okay. very good well here i'm giving you i'm giving you a hint as to what you can play for me Done. Huskadoo. In case you can't see on the radio or on this podcast, that's a Huskadoo t-shirt. I'll play yes. something from Candy Apple Grey. How about that? Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Okay, so you guys, part of the reason you're both here at the same time, aside from you're both lovely and, and uh, I've gotten to know both of you, is that you recently co-authored a article in Time, in Time magazine, uh, labeled Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is dead wrong about vaccines. And I think that really fits into what we're talking about today. Before we get to that guy, um, we're going to get to that guy. Let, let me start with something interesting. I, I've heard you guys mention a little bit, and we haven't had a chance to really go into this too much here on this podcast, but let's talk about groups that are profiting off of the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, can you guys tell me a little bit about what, what you're seeing out there in terms of people that are making this a, a lucrative business. I think it's really important for people to realize that what we're seeing with this explosion in anti-vaccine misinformation and disinformation, this isn't sort of a random phenomenon, a phenomenon that sort of came out of nowhere. This is highly organized. This is highly profitable. I call this a for-profit organized anti-vaccine movement. And the volumes of money exchanging hand are really extraordinary. The very famous anti-vaxxers, the so-called disinformation dozen, as they're called, they were called that by a fantastic nonprofit uh, called the Center for Countering Digital Hate. The disinformation dozen, folks like Merkela, RFK Jr., they are raking in millions, if not tens of millions of dollars from their anti-vaccine enterprise. The New York Times, for example, 
did a very in-depth investigative feature on Merkler, and they estimate that his net worth is around $100 million. We know RFK Jr. rakes in millions of dollars as well, not just from his anti-vaccine nonprofit group, uh, but from other uh, activities related to his, his anti-vaccine activism. And there is money to be made, right? There are folks who are selling tinctures and, uh, you know, fake cures. They're selling books. They're selling videos. You know, there is a huge amount of money to be made. If you go to Amazon, very depressingly, if you go to Amazon and you look under vaccines, often in the top 10 are anti-vaccine books. There are profits to be made here. I find this industry industry to be one of the most deeply unpleasant and deeply cynical industries out there. I would equate them, to be honest, with the uh, the fake drugs, the fake medicines industry. The fake medicines industry is actually more profitable than the genuine men medicines industry, and they are selling products that they know are worthless and that they know people will die from. Similarly, the anti-vaccine industry is preying on people, preying on vulnerable people to monetize fear. They, they um, in a way, instrumentalize and weaponize misinformation and disinformation to make profits, knowing that as a result of their actions, people are going to be harmed and people are going to die. And there is there is so much evidence that as a result of anti-vaccine activity, you know, people haven't got vaccinated and have gone on to die. So this is a it's a very deeply unpleasant and very deeply cynical for-profit industry. I understand your your anger. I do. <laughs> Actually, as I was preparing for this episode and I was just kind of like reviewing some stuff about RFK Jr. again, and we've discussed him on a previous episode with Rebecca Watson. Um, I found myself getting so angry, angrier than I have for a lot of other people, much angrier than I did for Andrew Wakefield, for example. I, I'm, And I'm not entirely sure why that is. We might be able to work through some of that today, but there is something about this particular grift, this particular attention, this particular focus that's hurting people that are already at risk. The, his, you know, his children's group that really focuses on underprivileged groups as they already are there's something about it that really bothers me and the people making money off of this and the way that they're doing this and masking themselves in a way that's almost left or progressive particularly bothers me do you find that the the target groups for this are are people on the left or do you find that maybe the target groups for this are the undereducated where what are the what is the target market for these groups and gavin you can also respond to this one yeah i mean well in the past there was this really kind of pervasive fusion between like the far left hippie kind of people um who kind of shunned anything to do with pharmaceuticals and that was kind of the basis of commonality for them and for this anti-vaccine movement um but over time it's kind of horseshoed its way into the right and basically it's framed itself as a movement that fundamentally stands up for individual freedoms uh, and appeals to them in that on those grounds and you can see for example there was a recent pew research poll that looked at support for mandatory vaccination uh, as a condition of entering schools for things like measles mumps rubella 
that sort of thing. And I mean, um, as the pandemic progressed, you didn't really see much of a shift with Democrats, but you did see a significant decline among Republican voters. Um, so it really is both. I don't think that they're especially picky about who they target, if I'm honest. I think that they do have a tendency to target the more vulnerable people um, because they are unfortunately easier targets. They have um, internalized trauma, trans, uh, transgenerational trauma, and their well-earned distrust is very easy to weaponize for malicious ends, um, which is very, very sad and very cynical. Um, but at the end of the day, to me, everything that's happening is just an effort to further legitimize this movement and a cynical effort to enrich people. I mean, like if you look at Robert F. Kennedy's Children's Health Defense, which is the anti-vaccine propaganda group that he masquerades as a charity, like, I mean, for all its name, what has it tangibly done to improve the health of children, right? Mm -hmm. right. Because like this is a group that crusades against vaccines, crusades against mercury. Um, uh, Kennedy has said like SSRIs have contributed to mass shootings, which is like it's this whole other can of worms that I don't even want to get into. Um, and dignify, frankly, with any level of seriousness, because it's absurd and it's offensive to any psychiatric patients. But the, the point being, it's just it's it's really a farce and it's a very cynical and predatory scam. And it's a very well constructed and thorough scam insofar as the, the way that the lore works. Like one of the, the, the central tenet of the piece that we wrote in time is basically that Kennedy is a person who is not worth engaging in a debate um, by legitimate scientists. And um, I think that as time has gone on, since the piece admittedly was not that long ago, I think that case has been strengthened because it seems like there's this perception uh, among much of the public that like conspiracy thinkers are just stupid, but stupid in this kind of vacuous way mm -hmm. where all it takes is just like, you have to give them the correct information and then their whole world falls apart. But that's not how it works because this is the thing, like experts will hold grand rounds, read the actual science, go through the case reports, they'll come up with their interpretation. And then people like Kennedy, like the disinformation doesn't, will maybe read those same reports, but half the time they're publishing in predatory journals that they themselves founded, which have no real peer review and just like claim any random harm of a vaccine as being legitimate. And it, it involves this very elaborate lore construction and replacement of real science with fake science. So it is not enough to just know the real science. and who the hell has the time to spend to get to know the real science and get to know the fake science and get to analyze where all the fake science has got it wrong and then take that apart live in an interview like no no one does right yeah, if you're yeah. if you're a serious scientist like you're spending your day in the lab working on vaccines understanding the real world problems that like are tangibly affecting people and i mean um that's not to say that the that anti-vaccine rhetoric is not one of those problems and i think that finally people are starting to come around to that within the world of academics and view it a little bit less condescendingly and starting to recognize the importance of science communication, although we're still definitely not there. Um, but no one serious has the time to dig into every single lie that Kennedy espouses in like the real Anthony Fauci, for example. Um, and and also there's a rhetorical skill that those people would yeah. lack, even if they did have the time. It's not their strength. Yeah. It's not why they went into doing what they do. It's it's winning an argument. You guys actually, it, in your article, you mention a historical precedent for this in Minnesota. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that relates to the current debate? 
Yeah, and I, I, for the record, I'm a proponent of involving historians more in art and science communication because they're just a wealth of yeah. really excellent knowledge. But um, I actually stumbled upon it on Twitter. There was is a historian named Andrew Wehrman, um, and he is an expert on the history of smallpox vaccination in the United States. And in 1902 in Minnesota, right, so this is where, like, smallpox is still very much around. Um, vaccination has done a really good job of starting to get it under control, and vaccination is mandated for school children. At the same time, there is a fairly active anti-vaccine movement, and I, I think that might surprise people, but the truth is the anti-vaccine movement is as old as vaccines, and we see it exist in many modern incarnations, but it's not a new phenomenon. So in 1902, the local anti-vaccination league really wanted to overturn this law that required vaccinating school children against smallpox, and they managed to generate enough interest in this that they were able to organize a debate. And this debate involved a doctor named, uh, God, I hope I pronounced this correctly, but Justice Ohagi, I believe. Uh, and he was a really, really big name in medicine. He was their um, public health czar. And he managed, he was the first American surgeon to successfully remove a gallbladder in 1886. So a really, really big, important name. And he engaged the anti-vaccine advocate, W.B. Clark. And basically... Ohage thought all he had to do was just be honest about the evidence, just say, like, look, we have all this data, right? People get the smallpox vaccine. They don't die of smallpox. It's a really, really big deal. It's really important. Smallpox is such a major killer. And that's the point that he made. He was totally blindsided, though, when uh, Clark raised multiple false claims, including claims like the smallpox vaccine was causing cancer. Or he brought up an outbreak, for example, in which um, a, um, I believe it was... Um, it was in France, uh, a bunch of soldiers caught smallpox despite very high levels of smallpox vaccination, um, but was not stated in his argument was that these foreign soldiers were not vaccinated against smallpox and they were the ones who were getting smallpox and not the citizens who were um, living. I believe it was Germany. I, I might have gotten the details wrong. I should double check that. Uh, in short, Ohage was totally unprepared for the fire hosing of lies. Uh, he knew the real science. He did not know the fake science. And I mean, why would he? Right. And at the end of the day, this resulted in this mandatory vaccination law being repealed a year later. And then two decades later, Minnesota had its deadliest smallpox outbreak in its history. Uh, it, it resulted in 500 deaths. And uh, most of them, I believe, were children because that's who was getting vaccinated. So like this is very much not unprecedented. And whenever we see anti-vaccine rhetoric swell, it's very, very typical. You see vaccination rates decline and then the disease comes back and then vaccination rates rise again. Like this has been seen in Samoa, which we talked about in our piece. This has been seen also in Minnesota among the Somali community when Andrew Wakefield visited there. And it's so, so sad and so preventable. Um, so let's talk about Samoa because that part, I, I mean, it, that's a more recent historical precedent and it involves our boy RFK Jr. Let me set the stage a little bit. For, for listeners, uh, Samoa, the independent state of Samoa, uh, until 1997, known as Western Samoa. It's a unitary parliamentary democracy. It is a sovereign state and a member of the Commonwealth of Nations. It was a colony of the German Empire. I didn't know this, from 1899 to 1915. And then it came under British and New Zealand administration. I don't know how they both co-administrated it, but apparently they did until 1962 when it became an independent state. But let's move forward to around 2012, 2013. Gavin, can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Because 
Samoa back in 2012 used to have pretty high rates of vaccination. They're about 92% of their, their kids were vaccinated back then. But then around 2018, that number dropped to 40%. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that occurred? So the Samoan government, Samoan public health officials, they recognize that they had dropped the ball in keeping measles vaccination rates up. Um, they acknowledged that they were not as uh, proactive as they could have been. They let the rates slip. And obviously, when you have vaccine coverage rates that low, that puts you at risk of measles outbreaks. No doubt about that. There was then uh, an episode, a very tragic episode in which nurses gave two patients a dose of a vaccine that had a muscle relaxant in it that caused deaths, two deaths. They were not deaths from the measles vaccine. They were medical errors, very tragic. And the government responded by pausing the measles vaccine campaign. Into this clearly very sensitive, somewhat volatile situation, as you can imagine, you can sort of think what's going to happen next. The anti-vaccine movement pounces and sees an opening and starts essentially saying the measles vaccine itself can cause uh, measles and measles outbreaks. Um, RFK Jr. visits Samoa June, 9, June 2019. He appears alongside local anti-vaccine activists. Uh, the measles coverage rates are dangerously low by then, and there was an extraordinarily horrific measles outbreak that led to 83 deaths, most of whom were kids, um, hospitals overrun, siblings dying, you know, just horrific. They ran out of children's coffins. Other countries were, were sending pediatric coffins. Uh, a truly horrific situation. Um, and then Kennedy had the absolute goal uh, to write a letter to the president of Samoa, deflecting blame, trying to deflect blame from the anti-vaccine movement that had been peddling horrific myths about measles vaccine, trying to deflect the blame and somehow suggesting that the vaccine itself was causing the outbreak. That has been absolutely thoroughly debunked uh, by the physician scientist David Gorski, um, but was just, uh, I think, another example. The anti-vaccine movement found itself under great scrutiny, under great fire. They had been peddling myths about measles vaccines at a time when the answer was to drive measles vaccination rates up to as high as is possible, ideally 90, 95% to reach herd immunity. They were there on the island with RFK Jr., um, you know, spreading these just dreadful myths about the vaccine. So they clearly felt under scrutiny and they tried to get out of it by blaming the, the vaccine itself. Yeah, and I think that, that is one example of why this discussion that we're having today, this isn't academic, this isn't theoretical, this isn't, oh, you know, uh, let's debate this, you know, the science of the most effective way to reach people with vaccines. That's, you know, there's a lot of, lot of good, important discussions to be had about that. This isn't, some, this isn't, you know, there are clearly, there are scientific questions around improving vaccinations, improving vaccination delivery, about understanding how we, you know, address 
uh, vaccine hesitancy. This is not the debate we're having. This is a discussion today about deadly misinformation. And uh, I think it's really important, you know, to, to continue to make that point. This might all be fun and games to RFK Jr. You know, a debate with Peter Hotez would be fantastic for his ratings. It would be a media circus. Uh, you know, the 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 his he's already a household name, but he would be even more of a household name. But the the public health consequences, the negative consequences are real and potentially deadly. And the Samoa example, I think, is such a good example because it really focuses on how just a little bit, a little window of opportunity for confusion led to this. Those two nurses yeah. that were involved in those two tragic cases where they administered the muscle relaxant along with the vaccine instead of the saline, which was supposed to go with, they were charged with manslaughter. I mean, it was very clearly, which is a whole interesting story in and of itself, but like they, there was a very clearly at some point figured out and, yeah. but, but that was already too late. His yeah. group, the children's defense fund was already deeply involved in Samoa yeah. at that point. He was meeting with the prime minister as an honored guest. He felt like he had that guy's ear. And then, so again, the word cynical comes up where he sends that letter afterwards being like, yeah. no, 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 no. It wasn't the taking away the vaccine. It was that they got too much vaccine and they shedded because yeah. of the vaccine, this ridiculous thing that's been super disproven. Anyways. And it, that's it, right. He prays, he prays on people's fears and he prays yes. on insecurities and he targets minoritized communities who have every reason to be somewhat suspicious of medicine. You know, there has been yeah, targeting by anti-vaxxers of Black Americans, of Jewish Americans. You know, both the, both those communities have very good reason to yeah. have history of concern about organized medicine. Look at what the Nazis did to the Jews during the Holocaust, the horrific medical experimentation. And look at Tuskegee and the, and the legacy yeah. of the thing. And then anti-vaxxers prey on that. It's so deeply unpleasant and deeply cynical. Yes. And there is, I mean, our original history of vaccination in this country when it first came out, there is a bad history with it. There is a history of racism that's tied deeply into the origins of it. And they'll, of course, bring that up. And, you know, what's a valid point. It should be brought up. Tuskegee and all those things should be brought up and still talked about. And we do. Absolutely. But they're using it in this way to harm the people that have already been harmed the most. Yeah. And it really gets to me. Uh, sorry, and you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I just think it's worth it to spend a few minutes just looking specifically at what Kennedy says in this letter to the prime minister and how he's so actively dishonest about the facts, because like this is not something like these. The claims that he makes are things that you are probably going to miss as like in terms of how inaccurate they are, unless you're pretty deeply embedded in the world of vaccines and familiar with the details of who the good and the bad actors are. Um, so, for instance, he opens the letter by saying that the children getting sick are the ones uh, that are too young to get MMR, which means that this must be because of inadequate antibody transfer since the moms had MMR instead of measles, which is hardly the point because eventually, like, yes, they're too young for MMR, but maternal antibody titers wane. It is, strictly speaking, true that measles infection gives you a somewhat higher antibody tighter than the MMR vaccine, but the risks of measles infection are so substantially greater than anything you could get from MMR that it's just not worth it. And you certainly would never say people should get measles instead of getting the MMR vaccine to protect their unborn children. He then cites really, really old work um, from, I believe, the 1960s, where they suggested that the herd immunity threshold for measles would be 
something like 55%, which we now know is absolutely not true. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what he's trying to claim there. I think it's just like one of those instances where he just wants to cast doubt on experts. Um, mm -hmm. I think that in the context of the time, that estimate is more understandable because you have to remember that like this is when everybody is still getting infected with measles. So there's like a, a background, a very high level of immunity. And then as population turnover happens, you start seeing outbreaks. Um, then he goes on to say that measles vaccination shifted the burden of disease to older adults and to infants, which has no basis. I think this is like another perversion of he, he really loves the Hope Simpson hypothesis relating to varicella, which the we can talk sorry. about a little bit later. The, what? You the hopes, what the hope? Hope Simpson. Yeah, so there was this uh, a really brilliant physician scientist, I believe he was a physician scientist anyway, um, Edwin Hope Simpson, and he basically figured out that um, immunity to varicella occurs, like, boostings of immunity to varicella occurs in one of two ways. One is, you know, the virus reactivates inside your body and you have a memory response, and then, in theory, that would protect you from another reactivation of varicella for a few years. The other way is through what's called exogenous boosting. So, Older adults who are at high risk of shingles encounter their grandchildren, for example, who are actively infected with chickenpox. They encounter the virus, their immune system mounts a memory response. This protects them against shingles. And this whole concept is why some countries, like in the UK, were hesitant to make varicella vaccination a routine part of the vaccination schedule because the concern was you vaccinate the kids against varicella, they're protected. But now you have older adults who are now not going to be exposed to varicella and you'll precipitate shingles outbreaks that way. And this is this this finding is reproducible. You do indeed see that like when older adults are exposed to varicella, they get a boost in their immune response and that this is protect protective. But the data that's come out, the modeling based on this hypothesis has just not held up. The U.S. has been doing varicella vaccination for 25 years and the predicted surge in shingles as a result of that has not happened. Um, so he, he loves the claim like he did this on uh, I think he was on Rogan's podcast. He did it also on the town hall he had when he was asked about vaccines by one well-intentioned doctor claiming that the varicella vaccine causes shingles outbreaks. He didn't really elaborate on it. It makes it sound like the vaccine itself gives you shingles, which is generally not true. Um, so like that, that, that's one of the things where it's like, there's a kernel of truth to it, but then he ignores all the other data. Like his evidence comes from theoretical modeling studies that have not held up to the real world data. And in fact, Varicella vaccination is being considered and will likely be adopted by the UK soon in light of these findings. And, and personally, I've really never liked this argument for against varicella vaccination, because even though it has merit, at the end of the day, you're telling children to act as human shields for the elderly and take on all the risks of varicella, which are going to exist for their lifetime to protect them. And then on top of this, you get highly effective shingles vaccine that older adults can take, like Shingrix in particular, um, is very, very effective. And now there's just no justification to keep doing this because the older adults should be getting the shingles vaccine to protect them instead of using kids as human shields. Right. Absolutely. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. But can you tell us a little bit about what's different, why this might be different uh, fundamentally with varicella and something like measles? What's the difference between the, these two illnesses that might give you this Hope Simpson hypothesis where the elderly then get increased rates and measles wouldn't is there is there anything we could point to well the nature of the infection is fundamentally different so varicella is a herpes virus it's a chronic infection it establishes latency and then 
as cell-mediated immunity declines with age, it can reactivate. And I mean, there are other triggers as well, and it can also reactivate subclinically. Like there are recent findings that show that in the third trimester of pregnancy, it seems like there's a subclinical reactivation in varicella very commonly. And this actually leads to an enhancement of the immune response against it and increases antibody titers, which can be transferred to the fetus. And this is theoretically protective um, against varicella. Um, so there are a lot of different circumstances. Measles, however, is an acute infection and it generally confers lifelong immunity if you survive it, um, mm -hmm. which is really not an issue. You don't really have to worry about waning with measles. What you have to worry about is when the people who are immune die and the people who aren't immune are born. And that's mm -hmm. what enables the outbreaks to happen and all okay. the catastrophic consequences of that. Okay. That's really just interesting. I mean, it, it's, he finds these guys are clever. They, they look through the, the yes. data or they look through enough of it to be able to get the talking points that they need, disregard the rest, which is, you know, not appropriate, obviously, especially when there's so much important information in the rest. And, and they use that and they use it in a way that is like, you know, the, they don't have to make up bold lies. They just have to omit certain truths. And that makes yeah. arguing with them exceedingly difficult. I mean, this is what I'm saying about like yeah. conspiracy theorists. They're not like vacuously stupid. They don't just like arbitrarily believe any ridiculous thing that just like is anti-authoritarian. Well, not anti-authoritarian, I guess like anti-establishment is the right term. Um, they will construct very elaborate lore. It will have a kernel of truth and you will be spending hours and hours trying to dissect it and it will have taken them maybe five seconds to come up with it. Yeah. Um, and that, that's fundamentally unfair. And the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that the stakes of a debate here are just fundamentally skewed dramatically in their favor because when we're talking about the people on the side of public health, on the side of science, we're trying to stop the resurgence of these diseases. We're trying to preserve herd immunity. And it is not enough to have a simple majority there. It's not enough to have more than 50% of people believe that vaccination is a good idea and vaccinate their kids. Measles, the herd immunity threshold for it to you know bring R down to less than one is in the ballpark of 92 to 95% of the population. And then you factor in the fact that some people are too young to get vaccinated. Some people are um, immunocompromised and cannot receive MMR because it could cause light, potentially fatal reactions like measles inclusion body encephalitis in them. And that number goes down and down and down. And they don't even need, like this is the other thing, they don't need to convince you that MMR is bad. They need to create enough doubt that you delay MMR long enough that there's now a gap that is exploitable by measles virus and that will initiate an outbreak. And that that's deeply unfair. And that's very, very sad. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't think a lot of our listeners are people who would really consider RFK Jr. as as a political candidate. Um, and he's not polling particularly well, but like 10 to 20 percent. And that's not bad. He's making millions within days. He is very popular. Uh, you know, I'm in San Francisco. He's very popular with the tech bros. And I'm interested yeah. into why this is, you know, it's like I, I, my sense of it is like guys like Jack Dorsey, these billionaires that like started Twitter and and there's plenty of people online as well who, who support him. It's like they love this disruptor quality of these contrarians like him. Um, and they are like people who are listening. And I think, again, we've seen a reality show uh, host win the presidency and how much damage that can cause in the long run. So it's not something we can just ignore. Um, and, and, and I want to give people as much 
firepower as they can, as much ammunition as they can to have for discussions with their families about RFK, because there's people in their orbits that are going to be listening to this stuff. And you know, especially here in, in the Bay Area, I mean, it's something I worry about all the time. So let, Gavin, let me, let's talk a little bit about, about the arguments that they're going to make as well. One of the big ones that RFK gets a lot of mileage out of is the VAERS, uh, V-A-E-R-S, um, can you tell us what it is, how they're using it, and why it's probably not a great argument against vaccines? Sure. I mean, so there has been a lot of anti-vaxxers using the VAERS database uh, to make extraordinary, extreme um, claims that do not hold up to scrutiny. So VAERS stands for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Um, and the various false claims that RFK Jr. and other anti-vaxxers have made uh, really shows he has no idea how this database works. As, as many of us know, anybody can report anything to VAERS, right? This is the first problem. It doesn't prove anything just because an episode has been recorded in VAERS and it's an episode that occurred after someone was vaccinated. It there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Does not prove that the vaccine caused the episodes. And in fact, theirs itself has a disclaimer on it. And let me read this. I think it's important to read this word for word. Theirs reports may contain information that is incomplete, inaccurate, coincidental or unverifiable. And so you have seen examples of deaths in VAERS, like car crashes, or even, you know, a girl who fell into a well after she had been vaccinated. Clearly, the vaccine did not cause this girl to die from falling into a well. The vaccine did not cause car crashes. There was famously the guy who turned into the uh, the Hulk uh, episode in Paris where someone tested this notion out that actually you can put anything in Paris and, and put a report of someone who turned into the Hulk after vaccination. Again, it's just showing you this is a passive system where anybody can report anything. The idea of theirs is that it is an early warning system. If you start to see a signal, in other words, if you do start to see several events happening that appear to perhaps be linked you can then go on to use better, more rigorous, more robust, more reliable surveillance system. And we mentioned one in the piece that Ed and I wrote for Time magazine, the vaccine safety data link. What you need to be able to do is then go on and investigate, and in particular, go on to look at medical records 
to make you know detailed investigations and in particular to be able to compare um, vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. But again, Kennedy and his ilk can simply say, hey, if we go in VAERS, we see all these you know, episodes, clearly it means the vaccines cause X. They do this over and over and over. And one of the problems with people like RFK Jr. is that when you show him the rigorous, robust studies that have been very carefully done over very long time periods with thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of participants that proves you know, that vaccines are safe and highly effective, they don't cause autism, he just sort of throws up his hands and he'll move on to some other piece of BS and say, well, what about this story in this, you know, magazine or whatever? He will just keep firehosing you with this nonsense over and over and over. I think it's also worth spending a minute discussing how you can get coincidental events related to vaccination because there's actually some very interesting and very telling history there. Uh, so a lot of people think that like the modern version of the anti-vaccine movement is all down to Wakefield. Um, it's probably actually a little bit older than him. So back in like the 1980s, uh, there uh, was a documentary, and I use that term very loosely, um, from the BBC called DT DPT or DTP vaccine roulette. It was about the uh, diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. And at the time, um, the U.S. was using a different vaccine than what's used today. We were using what's called the whole cell pertussis vaccine, which is basically like you take the entire pertussis bacterium and it's uh, killed. So it cannot replicate, it cannot cause disease. Um, but this vaccine had the major issue of being extremely reactogenic, meaning kids would get really, really, um, sometimes really high fevers and they would be very uncomfortable. And, you know, it's hard to watch as a parent, certainly. And um, it, it's not what you want from a vaccine, but the vaccine fundamentally was safe. There were, however, really aggressive parent activist groups uh, who were lobbying um, against vaccination and even suing pharmaceutical companies in court um, on the claims that this vaccine caused encephalopathy. And this led to like the, the idea of like this diagnostic entity called vaccine encephalopathy. Uh, and for a while, this was really thought to be a real thing. And eventually, the lawsuits that the pharmaceutical companies were paying for to defend themselves in court were costing so much more than what they were earning from sales on the DPT vaccines that they just decided we're not going to make them anymore. Like, that's it. It's not worth it. It's too costly. Free and market, point, baby. Free market. This, yeah. is, this is how it works. Yeah. Uh, at which point the U.S. government has to step in because it's like, uh, no, we can't have no vaccines against diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. Like, what the hell is going on? Um, so that's how the what's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act gets passed. And this law establishes the existence of what's commonly called vaccine court, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, where basically if you feel that you've been harmed by a vaccine, you can file a petition with them. And then there's a special master who can adjudicate whether or not you have a real claim. And they um, have something called table injuries, which which basically for the table injuries, all you have to do is show that the in the adverse event happened in the time period that would be expected after vaccination. And it's an automatic compensation. And the vaccine court gets paid for by an excise tax paid for uh, with either every dose or every lot of vaccine. I forget which one, um, but I, I don't think the nitpicky details are important. And this does give pharmaceutical companies some legal protections against lawsuit. But it's like this is another thing that Kennedy loves to say. Kennedy loves to say you can't sue vaccine manufacturers. This is not true. This law doesn't protect them against fraud, manufacturing defects and um, a third thing that I'm forgetting, but also 
if you want to sue a vaccine manufacturer over an adverse event that happened after vaccination, you can do it. You will have to go through vaccine court first. You will have to surrender any claim to the reward, and then you can go through the civil court proceeding. But in general, that's not a good idea because the pharmaceutical companies have very expensive, high-powered lawyers, and they will actively be fighting you in civil court, whereas in vaccine court, there's no such thing. Uh, and it's a much higher burden of proof in civil court than vaccine court. For vaccine court, you basically have to show that there's some plausible mechanism. And like, if it's convincing enough, you get the reward. Um, but that's, this is a slight digression. But the point being, so for a while, this entity of vaccine encephalopathy is thought to exist on the DPT vaccine is thought to rarely cause it. Bunch of investigations are done in the epidemiology and the vaccine safety data link. We can't find any real evidence that this disorder really exists. Two decades passed, then we discover that there are very rare but very severe genetic epilepsies, like severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy uh, or Dravet syndrome, in which there's a mutation in a sodium channel that appears, um, the sodium channel starts being expressed exactly around the time that children get the DPT vaccine. And the fever that the DPT vaccine triggered was enough to cause the seizures and unmask this genetic epilepsy that they all already had. So, like, it's very easy to get these coincidental events. And, I mean, um, Dravet syndrome is a very serious condition. Uh, it's very, very uh, challenging to treat. But at the end of the day, even if you're, like, even if you're worried about these reactions, it's still worth it most in most cases to get the vaccine and to manage the fevers as you can um, in the latest guidelines I've read anyway. Um, so the point being, like, they, they also have this attitude of, like, there are no coincidences. Uh, when it comes to various reports, but there very clearly are, and they can be subtle and they can be complicated. And it's not always a malicious thing. It's not like actively an intent to protect pharmaceutical companies or to protect uh, the market or the government or what have you. It's it's just, it's complicated. It's honestly complicated. Yeah. The, the coincidences thing is a very interesting argument now in particular, and that segues maybe a little bit into the next topic I wanted to talk about. You know, there is people online who have huge followings, like on Twitter in particular, where their whole account is just based on saying, this person died and they were vaccinated. This clearly, and then, and it sounds ridiculous. Some of them are absolutely absurd. So like the point where there'll be people being like, you know what probably happened in that submarine that imploded? They were probably disoriented because of the exactly. vaccination. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a joke. And I think for some people it is, but there are people who really are out there pushing it and they get a lot of clicks and likes and it drives me crazy. Speaking of people who can't possibly see coincidence in illness like vaccines and say Jamie Foxx having a medical issue, is Dr. Drew Pinsky. Uh, on his podcast, he has made connections to uh, Jamie Foxx, for example, in really sort of, I think, in really inappropriate ways. And he's brought on multiple guests who are huge names in the anti-vax movement and are making connections freely between things like vaccines and autism or vaccines and ovarian issues or fertility issues, things where there's really no connection that's ever been proven medically. Now, Dr. Drew, in case you guys are not familiar with him, he is a uh, an actual doctor. He is an addiction doctor. He has a practice. And I must just I'm state a couple things at the front of this, this part of the, the segment here. One, I have heard from people who know him in a professional capacity that he is an excellent doctor. 
And I, I don't doubt that. And I will tell you, I actually, he was kind of someone I looked up to. He had a radio show back in the late 90s called Love Line with Adam Carolla. And poor Adam Carolla became like the, oh, the woke, woke, woke guy that he is now. But like, it was a great show. It was relatively sex positive. They talked about HIV and AIDS openly before other people were. He was trying to communicate directly to people in a way that I thought was very helpful. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's a big part of like what planted in my brain to become a medical podcaster at some point. But at some point, he started sort of going further and further to the right. And there's been sort of a descent uh, in into far right conspiracy land where now on his podcast, he brings on uh, anti-vaxxers who make bold claims about connections to vaccines and autism, vaccines and depth and connecting all these things. And sometimes he may not necessarily agree with them all, but he doesn't really push back on a lot of these things. And he's giving these people a lot of voice and a lot of credit. And he's giving them, he's amplifying them in a really harmful way. And he will bring on occasionally other people who will disagree with him, but it, it, it seems a little bit unbalanced in what little I've been able to tolerate in watching. And he, he certainly seems to be giving credence to these, these connections. And it really bothers me. I, I don't know if I have a lot more to say about Dr. Drew other than that, other than like, it's a personal thing for me that really upsets me because I actually, uh, you know, did kind of, I, and maybe, maybe there's room for him to, to return to, sort of the voice of Sandy, but I feel like he's slipping further and further. And I feel like this is what I kind of want to discuss and get your thoughts on. I feel like this contrarianism is a drug. I mean, I understand like there are rare examples when being contrarian is very important, but when the predominance of medical history goes for one thing, oftentimes, truthfully, it's the right thing. <laughs> And, and there are rare cases where where people are um, right in their stance that that's apart from everyone else. Um, but it's pretty rare. And, and this is clearly not one of those cases. Why do you think guys like this? Why do you think this is happening? Why is this happening to doctors that we all know? And some of us have respected some of us in real life, some of us online have followed people who we've seen over the last four years really sort of descend into conspiracy theory and contrarianism what is happening to these people if i'm honest i think a big part of it is ego um i think that there, there's no doubt that the public health response to covid was mismanaged in a number of ways and i think that there's a perception that um they know how to do it better um with dr drew I, I don't know. I don't know his work that well. I know that he also had like that celebrity rehab show, which to me fundamentally seems extremely exploitative. I will say like, it's definitely true. He he's very comfortable and really flirts with the conspiracy theorists. I mean, like it's one thing to have Kennedy on your show, which is like, which he did. And he talked about the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, which is a really, really foul, I hesitate to even call it a literature. It's basically a screed that villainizes Anthony Fauci for the HIV AIDS pandemic and claims that ACT is poison and lionizes Peter Duesberg, which we can talk about later. With, by the way, Dr. Drew had no idea who he was, um, which is really quite shocking to me. Uh, what I've seen from Dr. Drew, uh, my good friend, Dr. Dan Wilson, went on a show um, seemingly in response, as, as far as I can tell, to pressure from his audience to uh, work from you know professional colleagues. Um, and I will say that, like, Dr. Drew 
it seems much more comfortable disagreeing with Dan Wilson, who is armed with highly accurate, well-informed evidence than Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is, needless to say, not. I, I really think a lot of this is a manifestation of ego and frustration with the establishment and how it's mismanaged it. But some of the things that Dr. Drew claims are, are just like, I'm absolutely aghast because it's not even simply the conspiracism, but like, for instance, he's claimed that in his patient population, he's seen far more young adults with like severe cardiac anomalies relating to mRNA vaccination than he saw get harmed by COVID, which, I mean, if that's the case, he needs to uh, tell the CDC and they need to do an investigation on his patient population. And and, like, and also, this is from a guy, I don't even know if he has an inpatient practice where he acts as a hospitalist no in the hospital taking care of COVID patients. There is yeah. no, there is no ward of a hospital or nor has there ever been for vaccine injury because it's just not that common. Whereas we all had COVID wings or the hospital became a COVID hospital yeah. at some point, you know, it, and that is so hilarious to me. That's so short-sighted and, and oh. sorry, go on. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But what gets me is he went, like, I, I went back and I watched the interview with Dr. Dan Wilson, um, who's a molecular biologist by training. And um, what gets me about it is it, he doesn't stop there. He says not only that like these reactions are from the vaccine, but that cardiologists are deliberately choosing not to report that they're from the vaccine. Like he, he also likes to do this thing where like he wants to be able to like disagree, but like collegially and everything. But to levy a claim like that against your professional colleagues and expect right. to be treated civilly, like no. <laughs> it reminds me of an interview. I list, it was an interview with Jeremy Faust, who's a friend of the show, and uh, Jay Bhattacharya who is one of these great Barrington Declaration authors and, and famous contrarians. And, yeah, and in the and in the interview, it's really funny because there's a debate, there's some Canadian organization held this debate, and they were like, uh, what, what's the what's the problem with the discourse? And Bachar was like, look, the problem is we can't treat people like civilly. We can't have civil discourse. We 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 go into name calling. Like, for example, my colleague Dr. Jeremy Faust here is a lying sack of shit. But you don't hear me saying he's a lying sack of shit, even though he's a lying sack of shit. And uh, then he's like, but why can't we be civil about this? It's ridiculous. Mm. May I just say that Jay Bhattacharya is part of a think tank called the Brownstone Institute. They call themselves the spiritual child of the Great Barrington Declaration. And the Brownstone Institute is calling for the execution, the execution of physicians and politicians, specifically either by public hanging or beheading. So Jay Bhattacharya is the last person on earth who should be bemoaning the lack of civility. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we're on the same page there. Gavin, do you, what, what's your thought about how these yeah. once respected physicians uh, are now like Dr. Drew, bringing guests on who claim that the COVID vaccines are affecting ovarian health, fertility, they're getting into the breast milk, that they're causing these genetic problems, that's a genetic yeah. manipulation. How, how do you respond to these things? I don't know what's going on in the mind and the heart of people like Dr. Drew or other, other folks like him. I mean, I think, Kaveh, you hit the nail on the head when you use this word contrarianism, because I think contrarianism becomes a hell of a drug for some people. Clearly, it taps into an audience that's a very large audience, very growing audience, an audience that is disaffected in some way, shape or form with, you know, modern medicine, with, you know, the the standard world view. Um, and there is this term that I think Ed mentioned earlier called conspirituality. 
first coined in 2011 by Charlotte Ward and David Voas um, in a paper which they published in a journal called the Journal of Contemporary Religion. And this is where you see the sort of alternative wellness, alternative medicine folks merging with the kind of anti-vaccine conspiracy world. They, they seem to have found a lot in common. They defined it, Ward and Voas, as a rapidly growing web movement expressing an ideology fueled by political disillusionment and the popularity of alternative views. And so you've got this sort of yoga, you know, medicines are bad, let's do juice cleansers world that are now kind of merging with the, you know, vaccines are evil and we're controlled by the government and Jews are bad. All of that is kind of merging and it's an extraordinary moment. And I do think that 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 is a part of what's going on here. I have to say, I have seen folks on Twitter, I'm not going to name names, but folks on Twitter who themselves are physicians or work in public health, but who have caught the, cons of the, the this contrarian drug. And you see them saying things like, hey, if we are just able to, you know, sleep better and meditate and you know, run a few more miles each week. We don't need vaccines. I've literally seen that from some of these folks. That's not too far from what I've just been talking about, this kind of conspirituality uh, movement. You know, if you're, a, if you're a health provider going out there saying, you don't need vaccines, you just need to meditate, something is amiss. Hey, I love meditation. Don't get me yeah. wrong. It's not going to protect me from COVID yeah. in the way that COVID vaccination will. Yeah. By the way, I do a great Andy from Headspace. You guys use Headspace? I've yeah. tried it once before. Meditation. Yeah. You, want, you, want to hear, you want to hear my impression of Andy from... from oh, yeah, go on. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andy. Hi. Um, I oh. absolutely agree. It's pretty good, right? Um, pretty good. Nobody gives me credit for that. I think that's yeah, a really that's good very one. Good. Anyway, you I, credit. I, I, absolutely, uh, I absolutely agree. And, and it, contrarianism... Contra I'm going to cut that part out. Contrarianism... Uh, is a hell of a drug. I absolutely agree. There's one last thing I want to touch base with you guys on. Um, it's something I find very troubling, which is, you know, now that the fog of war of COVID might be sort of lifting and we're getting further from it, uh, we're still obviously dealing with COVID. That's that's not going away anytime soon. But the initial confusion and all that, uh, all the, the 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 worst parts of it are sort of gone. The morgues outside of the New York hospital are have gone. I feel like the history of COVID is being rewritten by these people, by people like uh, Drew Pinsky, Bhattacharya, and RFK Jr., and these people with these big voices. What's happening is people are getting far enough from it that these people are with confidence out there online in real life stating how badly uh, the doctors managed all this. And, you know, as Ed mentioned, plenty of mistakes were made. There's no doubt. Lots of things that all of us got wrong initially. But, you know, not the stuff that they're complaining about, not the vaccines, not the importance of the vaccines. So uh, it, it, it really troubles me. Have you guys felt this way too, that like it's being rewritten to a point where even people who did the vaccines and were fine with them are kind of like, yeah, maybe we overreacted. Like I'm getting that sense and it, and I find it very troubling. Yeah, I do as well. Look, come on. There are, there are places in America where if you were to knock on doors in one in three households, you will find that somebody was killed by COVID. I think it's, 
appalling, I think it's horrific, this kind of amnesia we that we have about the deadliest pandemic in 100 years. The United States mounted one of the most anemic, pathetic public health responses. And, you know, it wasn't equal in who was maimed, who was disabled, who was hospitalized and who was killed by COVID. There were extreme racial inequities in who lived and in who died. If you ask any of my black colleagues or friends, they lost close family. And for, for, for these contrarians now say, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, it was like a cold. We shouldn't have really done anything. Or as the Great Barrington Declaration folks said, we should have just, you know, let it rip through the population to build herd immunity in three months uh, or other kind of myths in their sort of dystopian view. You know, it's it's deeply dishonest and it's deeply disrespectful uh, in terms of actually what happened, which was in America, mass death, mass disability and mass orphanhood. Yes, we made a lot of mistakes. Yes, we should have done a whole lot better in averting catastrophe. Yes, we absolutely need to have a kind of a, a, a US COVID commission they're, they're having one in the UK right now to understand what went wrong and how we can do better um, in the uh, in the next pandemic. There will be another pandemic. But to argue that it was really not that bad is is absolutely uh, appalling, preposterous uh, and, um, you know, deeply upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, just recently, Gavin and I were on a, a different um, interview and we were asked about God what damn we it. who pointing me at the guy. I'm going to destroy him or her. <laughs> It was on uh, Doctor Radio with Mark Siegel. Um, anyway, leave yeah. that out. It's going to be a beep. <laughs> um, he asked us about how we felt about the prospects of our ability to respond to the next pandemic, and uh, I think we're in a much worse place. If I'm honest with you, uh, yeah. I think, and that, that's not because see, it's very frustrating because there are two sides to this. There's the side of the science and the innovation, which looks incredible, frankly. I mean. Even with mRNA technology, for example, there is a lot that we haven't adequately explored. Like, for example, the vaccines that we have are modified RNA, but there are also so-called endless RNA constructs, which are circular, and you can give it lower doses, and they should be able to make as much of an immune response as our current mRNA vaccines with a smaller dose. Moderna is trying uh, as a booster vaccine, it sounds like something called mRNA-1283, which should also give as good an immune response at a lower dose. Self-amplifying RNA, you know, you should be able to make far, far more doses of vaccine with a far smaller quantity of RNA, which makes it like ideally suited to dealing with sudden public health outbreak emergencies like a, like a new pandemic. So like on the technology side, the future looks incredible. But at the same time, funding for public health is being gutted. You have a subcommittee on the coronavirus that is dragooning scientists for doing their job and writing honest assessments of whether or not SARS-CoV-2 has properties that suggest that it had a synthetic origin and to date still no evidence. And I mean, it's very worrisome. There is, like, there is, I think, a very real and very concerted war on science and on expertise right now. And I don't yeah. see a way to end it without tremendous casualties. And I will say that there is another aspect to it that really, really troubles me. So there is this concept of like a vaccine confidence cycle where first, you know, everyone's living with the disease, the disease is really bad, everyone wants the vaccine. And then the vaccine starts to bring the disease under control and you start seeing adverse events from the vaccines gain recognition, gain spotlight. So vaccine uptake drops. Then eventually the disease comes back 
uptake of the vaccine rises again. Uh, and, you know, maybe like depending on the disease, depending on the vaccine, you could get it to elimination, you could get it to eradication. But consistently, the thing that you see is the disease returns, vaccination uptake rises. And um, <clears throat> there, there's a lot of revisionist history going around now to basically make our response look worse than it was. Like, for example, one, one really pervasive thing I see is people claim that the vaccines don't work anymore. <clears throat> and this is not true. And this is based on some statistical misunderstandings. I have an invited commentary in clinical infectious diseases with Eli Perensovich that goes into this, but basically, What's happened over time is in the beginning of this pandemic, we were not comparing, we were comparing immunity from a vaccine to no immunity. And then over time, as more people have gotten COVID, we're now comparing how the vaccine does to how COVID does and hybrid immunity to infection-induced immunity. And naturally, because infection confers some level of immunity predicated on your survival, the vaccine is going to look worse. Gavin, what do you, what advice do you have for listeners, both our medical and non-medical listeners who might want to in some way help for the next pandemic, what what advice or direction do you have for them? I mean, I agree with Ed that in some ways on the scientific side, I think we will be better off in the next epidemic or pandemic. And so I think continuing to support science, to um, support, all global efforts around vaccine development for future pandemics um, to make sure that, you know, your government, in this case, the US government is investing heavily in the medical countermeasures for tomorrow is super important. The, you know, the buzzwords right now are the, uh, 100 days, right? There is a, there is a realistic wish that in the next pandemic, we could get a vaccine in 100 days. We seem to have validated new platforms like the mRNA platform, the viral vector platform. There is a lot more attention around the need for um, greater investments in R&D. I agree with Ed, though, on the non-pharmaceutical non side, you know, the politics side, the public health side, the non-pharmaceutical measures that buy you time. If you're going to get through those, you know, to get through that first hundred days, there are measures that can greatly reduce your chance of infection, hospitalization, and death. The politics around that, clearly, I don't know where we go. I mean, I'm, I'm less optimistic around that. If you have masks being politicized, for example, as Bill Henage at Harvard said, politicizing masks makes as much sense as politicizing gravity. Um, Although he says to me, he wishes he had said gravy, because that would have been an even better quote. Politicizing masks makes as much sense as politicizing gravy. Anyway, I don't know how, how important gravy is. Um, it's very, it's, it's, first of all, two things for our American listeners, it's gravity. Um, and second, for our American listeners, gravy would, would be much more important. <laughs> much more important. <laughs> I mean, in Britain, pie with gravy, is just, you know, it's part of our whole culture. Um, yeah. No, listen, uh, dude, we have a whole Thanksgiving thing, and the whole purpose of it is to get, gravy. you know, gravy into our bodies. The Everything well, on that table is just a vehicle that serves its purpose of getting gravy into us. That's well, what how we depoliticize 
you know, mask and distancing and all yeah. of those things. I mean, I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that one. There is a moment that we have now, and I would like to just go beyond the US, the moment that we have now in time to recognize that at a global level, we did extraordinarily badly on vaccine equity, which led to countless deaths that could have been averted. And we have to fix that. And I don't know what the answer is. Clearly, we need greater solidarity. We probably are going to need some kind of global agreement around what happens in the next pandemic. My personal preference would be for every country to actually be compelled to join a global mechanism in which when vaccines get developed, you know, that every all high risk people in every country get them first. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I would like to see that. I would like to see agreements around the sharing of the patent on the vaccine, around technology transfer, so that, you know, we don't have the situation that we had this time around. I had colleagues and friends in South Africa, for example, on the phone crying, saying, you know, my aunts and my uncles and my family are dying. There are bodies piling up. We need vaccines. What the hell is the world doing? I mean, we've got to avert that situation in the future. We have a window to do that now. There are multiple processes ongoing. There is a pandemic treaty uh, that is under discussion. There is a new pandemic fund at the World Bank. There's there's talk about a threats council. So I think getting that global side right, uh, you know, the, the science side heavily invested in, I am less optimistic in the US at least around the politics. I would be much more optimistic in places where there is you know, uh, uh, high public trust in government, strong public services, you know, the Denmarks of the world um, that didn't see the extreme polarization and politicization that we saw here. But for the USA, I'm afraid I'm somewhat pessimistic. And I cannot offer much more optimism either. So we're going to end it on that super cheerful <laughs> note. Thank you guys for coming on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to see you uh, both. I need to have you guys come out uh, for drinks again. That would be a blast. Let's get some plugs in. Um, Ed, where can people find you? Where would you like people to to go or to read about you or what you've written? Where should what should people do? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> normally, I would send people to my Twitter. Um, I'm kind of trying somewhat unsuccessfully to phase Twitter out. But I am also on Blue Sky, uh, which is one of the Twitter replacements uh, with my handle is at E. Nirenberg. Uh, I also have a Threads where my handle is Deplatform Disease, which is also what my blog is called. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I do Send love that. Here. I do love that blog. So do check out the platform disease people. Please do that. Everyone's having a hard time with the Twitter thing these days. Uh, Gavin, where, where do you want people to go for you? Yeah, I'm still on Twitter for, for better or for worse at GAME. Um, I am on Post and on Mastodon as well, but I'm not super active. I need to get more active on those. I'm very lucky to have a column for Time magazine. So if you just Google Time, Gavin Yemi, your my columns will pop up. Um, and then, you know, uh, I write in the uh, peer-reviewed medical literature. So, you know, pop my name into PubMed. I think I'm the only Gavin Yamey, Y-A-M-E-Y, Yamey, not Yami, mm -hmm, Yami. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can see some of the stuff I've written. I recommend following both these guys if you're not already. Um, I really appreciate you guys both being here. Thank you to Nadine for help with production. I appreciate it, buddy. And uh, if you're interested in following me online, I am, I'm on Twitter, but whatever. 
don't worry about that. I'm also on Blue Sky, <laughs> and I'm sure by the time this comes out, Threads as well, depressingly. So whatever, find me wherever you want, or just listen to the podcast. Um, oh, more importantly, leave a review at iTunes. I appreciate that. Okay, thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you, thank you so much. It was fun. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.